Today, February 24, is the first year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And far from a swift and decisive victory, Russia is settling in for a long war. Uh, Trotsky is credited with saying, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. I would paraphrase this by saying, you may not be interested in attrition, but attrition is interested in you. And what I mean by this is that sooner or later, most wars become attritional conflicts in some way, shape, or form. And yeah. so attrition is very often about refusing to engage in the decisive battle until after you've weakened your adversary through attrition to a point where you actually have a chance at, at prevailing, in, prevailing in direct combat. I think that could definitely be considered attritional warfare because what the Russians were trying to do by embarking on the scorched earth policy, the scorched earth strategy, was to impose an unbearable strain on the French army's logistical system and to weaken the French army logistically so as to render it weaker uh, for the duration of the campaign and to be able to actually inflict at some point in the future a military defeat. By the Second World War, psychologists and psychiatrists understood, for example, that uh, the maximum length of time that any human being can be subjected to sustained combat is about 200 days or so. So I think a democracy can definitely carry out attritional war. And I would even go one step further. I would argue that a democracy is better at carrying out or more effective at carrying out attritional war than an, an, an autocracy. Did you know that ordinarily the weaker party in an armed conflict adopts the strategy of attritional warfare. In this Russo-Ukrainian war, presumably, Russia is the stronger party. Certainly, at the outset of the war, Russia seemed like the stronger party, numerically, technologically, and in many other aspects. But as the war grinds on, it is becoming more and more evident that Russia is not able to effectively mobilize its population and vast resources to employ them on the battlefield. So the fact that Russia has resorted to raw attritional tactics, bombarding Ukrainian cities and civilians and infrastructure as an embarrassing acknowledgement of Russia's inherent military weakness. Hey there, news peelers. Today's February 24, 2023. And this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? For example, what's the history of the GOP or the Democratic Party? What are our environmental, economic, scientific, and cultural histories? And how about the history of past wars, like between Ukraine and Russia? Or the history of women's rights and revolutions, like in Iran? And of course, there's China's long history. They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. After all, why shouldn't we expect intelligent entertainment. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. As the one-year anniversary of Ukraine's war with Russia approached this week, President Biden made a surprise visit to Ukraine. 
and later gave her house in speech in Warsaw, doubling down on America's commitment to support Ukraine. The same day, President Putin gave his State of the Nation speech in Moscow, promising to double down on Russia's attacks on Ukraine with fresh troops and a new major offensive. But this war may soon become more complicated still, because according to our Secretary of State, Mr. Anthony Blinken, China is considering providing arms to Russia, and China's leader Xi Jinping is preparing to visit Moscow for a summit with Mr. Putin very soon. And all of this fast-developing news comes at us against the backdrop of the slow grind of this war. And the inescapable realization is that this may be a long war. And as Russia pummels Ukrainian cities, civilians, and infrastructure, the realization is setting in that far from decisive battles, this may become a war of attrition. Clearly, Mr. Putin believes that he can bring Ukraine to its knees by basically attrition warfare. In this episode, you'll discover that, historically speaking, he's not alone. Many autocracies and democracies engage in attrition warfare with similar beliefs. Their successes and failures all depended on how they choreograph their resources, politics, peoples, and combined arms warfare. But when does an armed conflict transition from decisive strategies and swift battles into long-drawn wars? In which attrition becomes the strategy. Has human history experienced more decisive wars or more wars of attrition? What is a prime example of attrition warfare? And what different military strategies and resources have had to be adopted for these long grinding wars, these wars of attrition? To better understand attrition warfare, I spoke with Dr. Sebastian Lukasik, a professor in the Department of Leadership and Research Development. At Air Command and Staff College in Air University, which is a professional military education university system of the United States Air Force, where Dr. Lukasik is the director of the ACSC in Residence Elective Program. His research and teaching interests include combat motivation, the history and theory of air power, and military culture. He's currently completing a book manuscript about an October 1918 World War One battle. That exemplifies attrition. A book that I also discuss with him. To learn more about Dr. Lukasik, you can visit his academic homepage. The link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Dr. Lukasik and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Lukasik, it is a pleasure to have you in our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So let's get into it. What is attrition warfare? Well, thank you very much, Adele. It's a pleasure to be on the program. And、um, before we start talking about attrition, I just wanted to make sure that our listeners understand that, as an employee of the U.S. government,、uh, what they are about to hear, what you are about to hear, are my personal opinions.、Uh, This does not represent the official views of the U.S. Air Force or the Department of Defense or the U.S. government.、Um, so, having said that, attrition is a way of waging warfare that aims at the progressive, gradual wearing down of the enemy's material means, but also the moral means, the will to persecute war.、Uh, and it can take form.、Uh, it, it can take many forms. It can operate all the way down to the tactical level, but it can also extend up to the operational and 
strategic level, the political level, and it can, uh, like I said, it can be done in many different ways, which I'm sure we'll bring out in, in our discussion. So, so that's a sort of nutshell. N- nutshell definition of attrition warfare. Yeah. So would guerrilla warfare be considered attrition warfare? Yes, guerrilla warfare is really interesting. Guerrilla warfare and insurgencies, one could argue, are an example of attritional warfare for a couple of reasons. One, because they aim uh, very often at the progressive attrition of the enemy's uh, ability to fight, so the enemy's material forces, but also at the enemy's will to persecute a guerrilla war. So very often uh, insurgents and guerrillas and terrorists will try to attrit or impose attrition on their enemies' political and popular support to continue the war. So one can argue, for example, that what the Taliban was trying to do throughout the Afghanistan war was to sap the Western coalition's political will to continue the war in Afghanistan and to sap the uh, popular will, the popular support for those long extended wars in in countries like Afghanistan. So that's an interesting definition of attrition then, because... It doesn't mean attrition on the United States uh, um, fighting capability. It's more like a political attrition, if you will. That's correct. That's correct. And attrition can definitely be can definitely be political. It can extend all the way from the battlefield, but also up into the stratum of the cabinet, the cabinet room, and and popular opinion. Definitely. So there is another example of attrition, which I think is attrition. You can correct me is sort of scorch earth. Uh, we've had this in history, probably less so now than in the past. For example, uh, when Napoleon invaded uh, Imperial Russia, uh, the Russian Imperial Army just burned all the farms. So th- this was arguably attrition on their own country, but it was attrition against an offensive force. Is that considered attrition warfare as well? I think that could definitely be considered attritional warfare because what the Russians were trying to do by embarking on the scorched earth policy, the scorched earth strategy, was to impose an unbearable strain on the French army's logistical system and to weaken the French army logistically so as to render it weaker uh, for the duration of the campaign and to be able to actually inflict at some point in the future a military defeat. On the French army. So it definitely is an example of attrition, even though it seems like it's, as you pointed out, very counterproductive, right? It's sort of like an own goal. But the long-term idea was to impose a, was to essentially mess with the French army's logistical support, which was absolutely essential for, uh, for the success of the, of Napoleon's invasion of Russia and which, and, and the failure of which is actually responsible for the failure of the invasion as a whole. Yeah, but they were so far away from, from, their supply lines so far away from home, right. and and as we talked about guerrilla warfare and then um, scorch earth warfare, this question comes to mind: Do armies or peoples or groups at some point adopt attrition warfare as a strategy? We're going to plan to do this. Or is this something that sort of happens uh, throughout the course of the war? Yeah, that's a great question. So attrition is really tricky, of course, because attrition has a bad historical reputation. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. Is, it seems to be wasteful. It seems to be inefficient. Uh, it seems to depend on trading 
lives for other lives. Um, And as you suggested, uh, it can seem as if attrition can sort of be a default strategy when there are no other options. That's exactly what Um, I'm trying to figure out. Default or is it something that out of volition they adopted? Yeah. But I would argue that, you know, uh, attrition can be a valid strategy. So it's especially valid. It's especially, I think, effective when you are on the defending side. And one example of that that you pointed out is the Russian strategy in uh, Russian strategy in 1812, which was a case study of a deliberate adoption of attrition as an overarching strategy. So refusing battle, uh, refusing to allow Napoleon's Grand Armée to engage the Russian army, the main body of the Russian army in battle, while at the same time encouraging the scorched earth uh, policy that you discussed. The other example of attrition being deliberately chosen is the strategy that the Duke of Wellington pursued during the Peninsular War. Uh, so during the in, in uh, Spain, wars, right? In Spain and Portugal, yeah. the Napoleonic Wars, where he essentially did something similar. Wellington understood initially, beginning in 1808, that he did not have a large enough army to engage the French armies directly in battle. And so what he did together with his Spanish and Portuguese allies is resorted to a strategy that emphasized uh, some of the things that the Russians replicated in 1812, essentially cutting off small French detachments, harassing their lines of communication, progressively weakening the French army, uh, engaging in a scorched earth campaign to deprive the French of their uh, sources of supply and, and, and materiel support. And then and only then, after the French had been weakened, uh, actually engaging them in battle directly. So attrition can be a lot more sophisticated than simply trading one life for another. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's not interesting. Always- it's interesting that you bring up that example, uh, Dr. Lukasik, because here is a general Wellington from another empire. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of pride involved to go head on battle, a kind of manly, chivalrous battle, especially in those days in the 1800s. It's very astute of him to adopt this strategy. This is a great example that you actually decide not to go to battle. You opt in for a different type of strategy, in this case, attrition warfare. Yes, it definitely runs counter to a lot of uh, Western military culture, right? Yeah. emphasis on battle, uh, especially given the fact that Napoleon had displayed a paradigm of waging warfare which stressed the the, the decisive battle. And yeah. so attrition is very often about refusing to engage in the decisive battle until after you've weakened your adversary through attrition to a point where you actually have a chance at at prevailing in prevailing in direct combat. But you're absolutely right. It goes against much of much of Western military culture, especially at that time. Um, so this brings up another question. Who usually chooses opts in for attrition warfare is it always the weaker party well um, i would argue that attritional war is especially attractive to weaker powers right because weaker powers cannot often hope to engage and prevail against a stronger power in direct combat Right. So, for example, you mentioned the example at the beginning of our conversation of insurgencies and guerrilla wars. Um, that is that is a prime example of that. So, for example, in the Vietnam War, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong essentially waged attrition warfare against the United States and its South Vietnamese allies. Um, and they did so by refusing to engage for the most part, although sometimes they did, but by 
refusing to engage in, in direct combat uh, and embarking on essentially guerrilla warfare, terrorism, uh, things of that sort, rather than trying to engage the main body of the American military and its South Vietnamese allies in, in large scale battle, uh, because that simply would not work out very well for them. You said attrition warfare is often attractive to weaker powers. Uh, That's correct. What do you say often? Are there examples of greater powers, the stronger party in a conflict adopting attrition warfare? In general, um, hmm, that's a good question. How about, uh, um, if, if I may contribute here, Russia now, arguably the stronger power? Russia is a stronger power numerically in Ukraine right now, uh, but one could argue it is the weaker power when it comes to actually employing military force, right? So, Interesting. Uh, the Russians certainly have numbers on their side. They have overall a much larger population, but they are not able to mobilize that population and mobilize their resources and military manpower and actually employ it effectively on the battlefield. So they are certainly using what we would consider attritional tactics. I mean, you read these stories in the news about the siege of Bakhmut, for example, with the Russian Wagner group executing essentially human wave attacks. And that is evidence of the fundamental bankruptcy of Russian military professionalism and, and Russian military culture. So they have a lot of stuff, even though they're running out of stuff. Uh, last I read, uh, half of their main battle tank fleet has been destroyed in the past year. They have a lot of stuff. They're running out of stuff, um, but they cannot mobilize it effectively. And yeah. so they are resorting to attritional tactics, at least, uh, as a reflection fundamentally of their inability to conduct modern warfare effectively. This is a big blow. I'm sorry, especially what? Especially combined arms warfare, which yeah. is a staple of, of modern warfare. Is attritional warfare different in the offensive, um, in the offensive case versus in the defensive case? I think there might be there might be a difference in the sense that in the offensive case, attritional warfare probably relies much more on the direct application of firepower and mm -hmm. maneuver as a way of imposing attrition on the enemy. Whereas in the defensive case, attrition doesn't always have to involve that. In the defensive case, attrition often involves things like retreats, for example, or avoiding battle, uh, engaging in these scorched earth tactics that you that you that you discussed. So, for example, one example of this would be the final months of the First World War, when the Allies were beginning to push the Imperial German Army out of France and Belgium, and the Allies did so essentially by using combined arms, very firepower intensive, combined arms warfare tactics to impose massive attrition on the reserves of the German army, to deplete the German army and to, and to eventually make it extraordinarily difficult for the German army to meet the concentric allied attacks that the allies launched all along the Western Front in the final months of 1918. So I would argue that in an offensive uh, setting, Attrition very often relies much more heavily on the direct application of firepower and maneuver rather than on the avoidance of battle, as we talked about in the last few minutes. Interesting. Um, and avoidance of battle um, actually can exhaust the 
uh, the, the aggressive uh, side by constantly chasing you, especially in the old days, in the 1800s, 1700s, the two armies, I don't know if our audience appreciates this, the armies literally needed to line up to go into battle. If one side didn't want to fight, you wouldn't have a battle. Yeah. Um, so is World War One a, a good example, perhaps a prime example of attrition warfare? Yes, it is. It's probably the sort of example of attrition par excellence in the sense that in the First World War, um, attrition was the sort of guiding principle of military operations and strategy almost from the beginning until until the very end. But having said that, I want to make sure that our readers understand that there is a tendency sometimes to portray the Second World War as somehow being fundamentally different in that respect from the First World War. So one could argue that the Second World War was not only an attritional war, but it was a far it was far more of an attritional war than the First World War, simply because of the How so there were no trenches, there were no lines like uh, World War One. Yeah, that's a good point, right? But the point is, the reason why the Second World War was an attritional war was because in the end, the outcome of the Second World War was decided not by virtue of any one decisive battle, but by the progressive grinding down of one side by the other, right? The progressive grinding <laughs> down of the material and, and, and moral moral resources of, of the other side. And if you look at the the sheer quantity of stuff and manpower that is mobilized in the Second World War, uh, one could argue that the Second World War was as much, if not more, of an attritional war than the First World War. Um, and it's also important to uh, emphasize the fact that when we think of famous military operations, which seem to be the opposite of attrition, so great battles of maneuver, for example, like the uh, uh, the uh, the Allied offensive, the UN coalition offensive into Iraq in, in 1991 during Operation Desert Storm, that is often touted as a sort of uh, epitome of maneuver warfare, of, of a decisive battle. Well, what we must understand is that that ground movement was preceded by several weeks worth of an air campaign whose purpose was to attrit the material foundations and the will to fight of the Iraqi army. So maneuver and oh, attrition. Oh, interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maneuver and attrition are not necessarily binaries. They're not opposites. They very often work hand in hand, hand in glove. And you cannot have maneuver without attrition. Successful maneuver very frequently, if not most of the time, has attrition as its necessary prerequisite. So we inflicted attrition on... Uh, Iraqi defenses uh, in the first war in, in Kuwait, we pounded them essentially so that by the time we went for that quote-unquote de decisive battle, we had a much higher chance of making that battle decisive, right? That is correct. Uh, right. And you can see that in many of the other campaigns, uh, you know, in the Second World War, for example, in the Pacific War, which is very often thought of, and quite correctly, as a war of maneuver on a grand scale across the Pacific, the whole purpose of that maneuver was to bring the Japanese force, was to bring American forces, naval and, and, and air and, and land forces, into close proximity to Japanese forces and essentially inflict massive battles of attrition on them. So we talk about island hopping, but we also have to talk about battles like Iwo Jima and Okinawa, which were essentially attritional fights, preceded by large-scale maneuver. Interesting. We'll be back after a short break to talk about soldiers' experiences and stresses in attrition warfare, including World War One that we just talked about. Um, we'll be right back. 
In March 2022, almost a year ago, President Biden was in Poland. And just like his speech this past week in Poland, he gave a rousing speech then. Except that back then, he inserted the following nine unscripted words into his speech. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Of course, he was referring to Mr. Putin. Soon after, we produced a podcast in Season 2, Episode 16, about the history of coup plots, assassinations, and revolutions in Russia. My guest in that episode, Dr. Mark Steinberg, revealed something very interesting. That in its history, Russia has experienced reforms, rebellions, and revolutions after failed wars. And there's a refrain that's repeated by Russians throughout their history. We can't live like this anymore. That episode is certainly relevant to what's happening now, Russia's failure in this long war. Russia is preparing to mount a major offensive before Western tanks arrive. Germany's Leopard 2, UK's Challenger 2, and our own M1 Abrams tanks. So in Season 3, Episode 6, we uncovered the history of tanks. The history of tanks on the battlefield from World War I to now bring up some interesting questions, like how many tanks should be sent to Ukraine? And here's my favorite question. What's the best tank in history? My guest, Dr. Alaric Searle, said, that's an idiotic question. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm not the only one who's asked him that question before, so that made me feel better. The links to my conversations with Dr. Steinberg and Searle are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Lukasek. Dr. Lukasik, you're currently working on an upcoming book that is very re relevant to our conversation here. Uh, why don't you tell us about it, please? Yes, so the book I'm working on is a case study of a First World War battle that takes place in the last weeks of the First World War in October of 1918. This is the Battle of Blancmont mm -hmm. in the Champagne region of France. And the Battle of Blancmont is fought by the United States 2nd Division and 36th Division, which fight as, uh, fight as part of the French 4th Army. And what makes Blomo interesting is the fact that it's not a decisive battle in the traditional sense of the word. It's a fairly small engagement by the standards of the First World War, so it's a division or corps level battle. Mm -hmm. But it is a battle that exemplifies the kind of combat that takes place in the last months of 1918 that imposes massive amounts of attrition and exhaustion on the Imperial German army, and the accumulation of which ultimately helps the Allies prevail on the Western Front in, in 1918. And so I'm looking at a very small part of the war to sort of extrapo extrapolate some larger ideas about uh, attrition, the relationship between attrition and combined arms warfare, and the relationship between attrition and soldier motivation and morale in attritional combat. You use the phrase uh, combined arms warfare in your book, and, and you also mentioned that term in the prior segment. I, I guess I have to ask, what does it mean? Because when I think of war, it's always combined arms warfare. Right. Or, 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 or was this something new in World War I? Yeah, so it definitely was new in the First World War. And essentially, uh, the simplest sort of uh, 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 definition of combined arms warfare, combined arms warfare is the ability to... Um, combine and coordinate the activity of the various combat arms in a kind of a seamless choreography of combat, choreography of battle to ensure that they support one another. So combined arms warfare is about combining 
the effects, combat effects of infantry, artillery, armor, air power, and increasingly today, real-time intelligence and surveillance. And this is something that really begins in the First World War uh, as an attempt to get around the trench deadlock of the First World War. So oh, yeah, when yeah. the trenches become uh, a solid front in late 1914, early 1915, the tactics of the time are not really well adapted to breaking this trench stalemate. So initially, the basic pattern is that of uh, conducting massive artillery bombardments. The bombardment lifts, the infantry goes forward. Well, that doesn't really work very well against entrenched machine guns and rapid-firing artillery and rapid-firing rifles. So the next step is to attempt to coordinate the action of infantry with artillery in a way where you have a rolling barrage. So the artillery barrage does not lift when the infantry goes forward. The infantry goes forward with the support of artillery. Uh, by, the, by 1918... So while artillery is going overhead, soldiers are also rushing towards the other side. And That's this is correct. new. And this is new in warfare, right? This is this is new. This is definitely new. The soldiers are walking some distance, a few hundred yards behind the artillery barrage. And the idea is that the artillery barrage was going to keep down the defenders and uh, will make it so much more difficult for the defenders to repel the attacking infantry. I so, see. Um, that's sort of uh, that's sort of been placed by the middle of the war, but that too is insufficient because what that is good for is breaking for breaking into the enemy defensive position, but not breaking through. Uh, by 1918, both the Western Allies, the Entente, that is, as well as the Imperial German Army, have come have come up with uh, sort of refinements of the system, where now you have the coordinated action of infantry, tanks, artillery, and aircraft in a way that actually allows the attackers to break into and break through this defensive system and to restore a modicum, not not all of it, but a modicum of mobility and maneuver to the battlefield. And this is essentially the foundation of modern tactics. Combined arms warfare today is the basic paradigm that most of the world's most important militaries use. And to bring us back to a discussion of Ukraine, I mentioned this a few moments ago, one of the reasons why the Russians uh, have not been able to attain their, aim, their, their aims in Ukraine is because they have displayed an almost pathetic incompetence at doing combined arms warfare, which is really embarrassing given the fact that they have had almost a decade worth of military reforms that were supposed to make their uh, military more flexible, more responsive, and, and better at doing this kind of stuff. So combined arms warfare is definitely new in the First World War. And it is such a compelling paradigm, such an effective paradigm, that it continues to be the basic warfighting paradigm of most of the nation, most of the world's militaries to this day. You know, as you were um, explaining um, combined arms, warfare, artillery going overhead, and these, I think I said they're running, you said, no, they're walking. Um, right. Just let's talk about soldiers' stresses and experiences sure. there. I mean, <laughs> talk about stress level. Uh, is this different than in concentrated warfare? Are there two different types of stress stresses here for soldiers in attrition versus concentrated warfare? Yeah, so I think the big difference is the intensity and the uh, the length uh, of of combat experience, right? So in attritional warfare, very often what you have is cases of soldiers being under fire for days, sometimes for weeks on end, 
right? So that imposes uh, certain stresses on the soldier's ability to endure combat. In concentrated warfare, sort of concentrated battles, um, those battles usually last for a specific length of time, and then they're over. Uh, the soldiers are not necessarily under fire for days or weeks on end. So one example, perfect example of this is the American Civil War. At the beginning of the American Civil War, what you would have uh, was uh, the opposing armies would come together on a battlefield. They would fight a battle that would last for about a day. Uh, it would last for a few hours and it would be terribly bloody. But after the battle was over, the armies would very often go into winter quarters and would not come together for several weeks or several several months uh, again. They would yeah, not fight again yeah. for weeks or for months. By the middle of the Civil War, what you have are engagements which are now lasting for several days. So a battle like Gettysburg, which lasts for three days, a battle yeah. like Chickamauga, which lasts for two days, uh, the Siege of Vicksburg, which lasts for several weeks. By 1864, 1865, you now essentially have battles bleeding, individual battles bleeding into sustained campaigns, like the Overland Campaign that's conducted by General Ulysses S. Grant and General Meade and the Army of the Potomac against Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, um, which ultimately culminates in the Siege of Petersburg that lasts for months. And you have troops sitting in trenches for months at a time. Obviously, they're rotated out, um, but they have to endure much more. Um, so it's very different from the beginning of the war and those stressors are definitely very different. And there are, you know, there are a couple of, uh, sort of general, um, general arguments among the historians who study this. There are some who believe that there's a universal experience of combat and it doesn't really matter what the length of combat or the intensity of it. Oh, I highly doubt doubt that. I mean, (laughs) go ahead. Yeah, please. Right, And then there are those who believe that you need to look at the particular context. So I'm, I tend to, I tend to sort of give more weight to the latter camp. I believe that context does matter. And that being a soldier in the trenches of the Somme, for example, or at Verdun in, in the First World War was a very different experience from being a soldier in, you know, in the Battle of Gettysburg or, or the Battle of Gravelotte in, in the, in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. So, uh, so the, stress- the stresses were different. Um, yeah. As you were sharing uh, with our audience, um, warfare in, um, in the Civil War and how the length of engagements uh, and attritional effects changed over the years from 1861, you know, there were battles that were a few hours or right. a day or two, and then Vicksburg, that would be several weeks. Uh, I'm wondering, fast forwarding to World War One. in World War One, was attritional warfare adopted as a strategy from the get-go, or did they think they're going to go and win decisively and it'll be over? So attritional warfare was uh, essentially a response to the failure of the paradigm of decisive battle. The expectation on all sides initially was that was that the war would be short, the boys would be home by Christmas. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and they were home by Christmas, but Christmas 1918, not Christmas 1914. Yeah. Um, and, and one could argue that there were actually compelling reasons to believe that, because if you look at the opening months of the First World War, the opening months of the First World War could essentially be classified as the last battles of the Napoleonic Wars, because they are fought with 
in many cases, tactical precepts and operational precepts that really resemble those of uh, Napoleonic wars of maneuver. You have enormous armies of composed of hundreds of thousands and, and in fact, of millions of troops maneuvering across the landscape. Uh, probably the best example of this and seeking a decisive battle. And the best example of this is the massive phalanx of, I think, five or six German armies that sweep across Belgium and northern France in an unsuccessful attempt in keeping with the so-called Schlieffen plan, an unsuccessful attempt to bring the French army into battle and defeat it in a decisive battle. So that's initially what happens. The same happens on the Eastern Front. So on, on the front where Imperial Russian forces are fighting the Austro-Hungarian forces and the Imperial German forces. And there you have large scale, massive battles in East Prussia as well as in Galicia. But very soon, because of the defensive power of modern firearms, uh, the room for maneuver becomes becomes uh, becomes less and less. And by the end of 1914 and early 1915, what you see emerging on the Western Front in France and Flanders, France and Belgium, is a continuous front line of trenches stretching from the uh, North Sea, from the English Channel to the Swiss border. And in that situation, you simply cannot outflank the enemy. Yeah, there's no room for maneuvering. Yeah. Exactly. So what you are left with uh, is some version of trying to impose, well, you can do several things. I mean, initially, there are attempts at breakthrough. Uh, there are generals who believe they can still break through and restore a modicum of mobility to the fighting on the Western Front and bring out the German armies into the field and defeat them in an open fight. But I would argue that by 1915, by the time that the French launched their unsuccessful second offensive in the Champagne region, in late 1915, that is increasingly, it's very increasingly clear that that's not going to be the case, and that the way to defeat the Germans will be to wear them out. And so in addition to battlefield attrition, you also have initiatives like the Allied naval blockade, which is imposed on uh, German-occupied Europe, which is supposed to starve the German people, and which is supposed to uh, starve the German war industry of strategic materials. And so this is an excellent example, uh, as you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, of battlefield attrition being combined with sort of strategic level and political attrition yeah. in one cohesive yeah. strategy. Um, Dr. Lukasik, earlier we drew a distinction between attrition in World War One and World War Two, but you submitted that there was attrition in World War II as well. It's just that World War I is more infamous uh, for it. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, you know, when, when we talk about this continuous battlefield experience, trauma that soldiers experience in World War I, uh, that's different than World War II. There were long battles, but there were also things like Sitzkrieg, and later there were yes. just no wars, uh, no no battles going on, I, I guess, except in the Eastern Front, it, where the soldiers' experience is drastically different in World War One than in World War Two. I would argue that depended on the theater uh, yeah. in which they were serving. So if you are a German or uh, Soviet soldier fighting at Stalingrad uh, in 19, late 1942, oh, early 1943, boy. Yeah. Uh, I would I would argue that their experiences are not much different from the soldiers on on the on the Western Front in the First World War and maybe even qualitatively worse in some ways. Uh, the reason being that if you're serving on, in the trenches in the First World War in a quiet sector, 
Um, you're not always in battle. Your unit will likely get rotated out of the trenches every couple of weeks or so, depending on the time of the war and depending on which army you're in. Um, but sometimes in these sustained battles like Stalingrad and many of the battles on the Eastern Front of the Second World War, uh, I would argue that the soldier experiences were absolutely far more horrific than, than anything on the, on, the, on the Western Front in the First World War. Now, having also said that, the, also, the other thing that's, that you need to consider is that by the Second World War, uh, the various armies' understanding of the psychological effects of combat on an individual were far more sophisticated than in the First World War. Yeah. And so by the Second World War, psychologists and psychiatrists understood, for example, that uh, the maximum length of time that any human being can be subjected to sustained combat is about 200 days or so. Uh, and you cannot replenish that, right? So after 200 days, if you survive that, your ability to operate effectively on the battlefield, your ability to actually operate effectively within the context of the tactical frameworks that you fight in is virtually nil. And so you're probably going to get rotated out. Maybe you'll be given another job somewhere else. Maybe you'll be sent off to send off to train uh, troops. Um, but you're absolutely right. On the Western front of the Second World War, for example, if we're talking about the Western Allied experience in the Normandy campaign, the Normandy campaign at its height before the Allied breakout of the Normandy bridgehead, uh, there were fears that it actually would devolve or descend into a World War One style attritional campaign. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of the casualty rates that Allied units and German units sustained in Normandy in 1944 which, again, we think of as a battle of maneuver, yeah. uh, very often approach the casualty rates of the great trench battles and attritional battles of the First World War. This is something that's not often talked about. Interesting. We'll be back after a short break to talk about what is actually involved in attrition warfare. And by that, I mean what type of soldiers, supplies, propaganda, and politics, to some of which we alluded in this uh, segment. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Lukasik, does attrition warfare require different type of supplies and materiel than those needed in decisive? war so i think both of them require a large um overhead so to speak but but uh, maybe slightly different overhead i would argue attrition war attrition war or attritional war requires i think a much larger overhead of uh societal mobilization and political support and popular support right so attritional warfare is usually protracted warfare uh, which means that you must be able to sustain it over a long amount of time. And so in addition to the material basis for waging attritional war, you also need to be, be sure that your population is behind you. 
Uh, you also need to be sure that your political elites are behind you. And when I say population and political elites, uh, sometimes that simply comes down to repression, right? Sometimes that simply comes down to the ability to actually impose some sort of a coercive, uh, domestically coercive uh, regime onto uh, onto your people and your political elites. Uh, and that's something that comes up uh, occasionally in discussions of, of Russia and, and the war in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's questions about the extent to which the Russian people are supporting Vladimir Putin. And of course, there is quite a bit of unrest, as far as I understand, in Russia, and, and there is an anti-war uh, segment of Russian society. But from what little I know of Vladimir Putin's regime, his regime is is also fairly strong when it comes to repressive measures. And so the ability to Putin's ability to wage an attritional war probably relies quite a lot on his ability to repress repress uh, any dissenting voices. How about the soldiers? I, I would think you're recruiting different types of soldiers for a decisive war, a concentrated war than a war that's going to drag on for months or even years. Yeah, I think there is something to be said about that. So if you think about the two great attritional wars of the 20th century, the two world wars, remember that they are fought primarily uh, by armies that are draft-based or conscript-based, right? Because attritional warfare re requires enormous reservoirs of manpower. Uh, so most of the great military forces that fight in those two world wars, at some point or another, if they don't have conscription to begin with, will adopt conscription. The best example of this is Britain, which starts off with a very small professional army, which is destroyed more or less in the first months of the war. By 1916, it introduces conscription. Uh, the only anomaly to that in the Second World War, interestingly enough, is the Canadian military, which is the only Western military that, that has an all-volunteer army fighting in Europe. In the Second World War, although Canada too will ultimately adopt conscription by uh, by 1944, the same could be said about the American Civil War, where initially you have large volunteer armies uh, that people actually people volunteer because they're swept up in the sort on both sides, the Union Confederate side, they are swept up in this sort of uh, patriotic fervor. Um, but by the second year of the war, both the Union and the Confederacy have to implement conscription, although conscription never becomes the principal means of raising military manpower in the American Civil War on either side. Uh, the Confederates rely uh, on about 25% of their forces, relies on, on conscripts. For the Union Army, it's 6%. But nonetheless, when you have a long, protracted attritional war, very often you need some sort of a coercive mechanism to drive people into the ranks. And again, contemporary example is the Wagner Group in Russia, which, according to re uh, to many reports, is using uh, essentially prisoners and felons. Yeah, convicts. Um, convicts. When you have conscription, especially in a war that is unpopular, uh, you know, you mentioned conscription starting in 1916. The British started doing it. At least in that case, they could sort of portray uh, the Germans, uh, the German empire as the, as, as the aggressors. They had that narrative. Um, but especially in the case that the war itself is unpopular, conscription, I would think that would, would really sap morale and also bring in, um, I guess, unwilling soldiers, but soldiers are, that are not of the highest fighting quality. 
Yes, absolutely. So you, you certainly have that. Uh, you know, an example of this would be probably the Vietnam War, which of course was the most unpopular war in American history, arguably, uh, and where, especially by the end of the American involvement in Vietnam, uh, the American military has very severe morale problems uh, in in its ranks among its soldiers in, in Vietnam, precisely because many American soldiers simply cannot understand why they are there yeah, uh, and what the purpose of the war is, combined with the actual nature of the war, which is fundamentally an attritional war um, and a kind of an open-ended war where victory is very poorly defined. Um, you mentioned Vietnam, which leads me to my next question. Is it possible to carry out attritional warfare in a democracy? Yes, I think it is. Uh, you know, we we carried out attritional warfare in both world wars. So the the key is to make sure that the people understand what the war is about. If the political leadership can do a good job explaining to the people what the causes of the war are, what the war aims are, I think it is possible. And it is possible for democracies to support large casualties in pursuit of those aims, provided that those aims are explained uh, uh, sufficiently and, and compellingly. And that's exactly what happens in the Second World War, when I think President Roosevelt is very clear about articulating war aims based on the four freedoms, based on the Atlantic Charter, that most American people are willing to get behind and and understand what what they are. So I think a democracy can definitely carry out attritional war. And I would even go one step further. I would argue that a democracy is better at carrying out or more effective at carrying out attritional war than an, an, an autocracy for the simple reason that a democracy has an open society and a democracy, uh, in a democracy, it is easier for political leaders to persuade their people, their voters, uh, why a war should be fought and why it should be fought in an attritional manner. Interesting. And that sets us up uh, for a discussion of the war in Russia, which is not a democracy. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Lukasik as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Lukasik, do you think Russia is now engaged in attrition? warfare or is it aiming for de a decisive victory uh, and, and i guess i should ask this or is it the case that russia believes attrition warfare will lead to a decisive victory i think it's probably not to not to give you a cop out of an answer but i think it's probably a little bit of both so uh the russians very clearly believed that they would attain decisive victory in the early days and weeks of this war when they believe that Ukraine would simply fold like a house of cards. Uh, by now, the war has certainly become attritional for Russia at the tactical level. Again, we talked about you know battles like Bakhmut, where the Russians are throwing massive amounts of manpower against Ukrainian defenses. And the Russians, are, I, I think, are clearly trying to exhaust the uh, Ukrainian military's ammunition stocks 
before they can be replenished from the West. I suspect that that's, that's a huge part of, uh, part of Russian strategy. But at the same time, the Russians are also engaging in strategic level attrition by targeting uh, civilians, Ukrainian civilians, and targeting Ukrainian infrastructure, which I think is an attempt to perhaps sap the, sap the morale of, of Ukrainian military and Ukrainian population. So I definitely think that by now, what the Russians are doing is a classic case of, of an attritional of an attritional war right across the spectrum from tactical level to strategic and political level attrition. The general fear in a long drawn war between Ukraine and Russia is that Russia will benefit um, from it. Um, and, and I understand how that could be because they're just perceived as the larger, the bigger power. But when you look at Russia's history, we see that Russia has actually suffered severe internal turmoil after unfavorable war outcomes and the revolution of 1905, uh, 1917, and 1918 um, uh, are examples of that. So who will benefit from a long war here? And I'll add a little twist to this. You were saying that democracies may actually do better in a long war than autocracies, uh, dictatorships. Yeah, so I think that the longer the war lasts, um, the less favorable it will be for the Putin regime, simply because Putin had staked a lot of his own credibility on this war and for his, sure, his war yeah. did not produce an immediate victory. Yes, it's true that Russia has the bigger battalions, so to speak. It has more people. Uh, than Ukraine. But you also have to understand that, as I mentioned, I think at the beginning of our conversation, Putin has done a terrible job mobilizing his country, mobilizing his society for this war, and actually translating that numerical advantage into effectiveness on the battlefield. Uh, the Russian military's performance has been pretty, um, well, pretty pathetic. I think that's not too strong a word to use. Yeah. Uh, the Ukrainian military might not have the bigger battalions, but the Ukrainian military has proven itself far more professional, far more effective, far better able to use this combined arms warfare paradigm to greater effectiveness on the battlefield than the Russians have. So I would argue that in the long term, certainly uh, this is going to be very painful for Ukraine. But in the long term, I think that given this history of instability that you mentioned in Russia after long, long years of, of war, uh, that might boomerang on Vladimir Putin as well. And I don't know enough about his regime. I don't know enough about the domestic situation in Russia to be able to tell you whether there is a viable opposition or, yeah. or an alternative to Putin's rule. But I would argue that Vladimir Putin is probably getting a little worried right now about, uh, about uh, the protracted uh, uh, dynamics of this war. Yeah. Um, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about attrition warfare, what would that be? Well, I would paraphrase uh, somebody that I don't necessarily admire, Leon Trotsky, but who once <laughs> said that, uh, supposedly said, and it's probably apocryphal, but what the heck. Uh, Trotsky is credited <laughs> with saying, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. I would paraphrase this by saying, you may not be interested in attrition, but attrition is interested in you. And what I mean by this is that sooner or later, most wars become attritional conflicts in some way, shape or form. 
So be aware of attrition, be aware of what it is, because there is no such thing as a war that is purely a war based on decisive battles and maneuver. Most wars do not end in one spectacular decisive battle. The outcome of most wars historically, at least in the modern era, has been decided ultimately by attritional dynamics. Dr. Lukasik, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>